everyone has a lot to say these days about the OECD's digital economy proposals, best known as Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, but perhaps no one has more to say about them than one of our favorite and most spirited Fiona Show guests, Dr. Lorraine Eden. You might have heard her pick apart, <laughs> I mean, discuss the OECD's Pillar 1 proposal on last week's Fiona Show podcast. And if you didn't, what are you waiting for? Check it out. And maybe you caught her recent article in Bloomberg Tax, Taxing Multinationals, the Globe Proposal for a Global Minimum Tax, where she explains the highest and lows of Pillar 2. If you didn't, no worries. This week, in her third guest appearance on The Fiona Show, the emerita professor of business, Fulbright scholar, and author of the book Multinationals and Transfer Pricing, among other transfer pricing titles. Sorry to go on, but the woman comes with an annoyingly long list of accomplishments. We'll be discussing her Globe article and what she really thinks about Pillar 2. Well, technically, she'll be covering one tax proposed in Pillar 2, the global minimum tax on global profits, and what that means for multinational companies. Spoiler alert, she's much more enthusiastic about Pillar 2 than Pillar 1. Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions' irresistible weekly transfer pricing podcast. Well, we think it's irresistible anyway. Where else can you press play, get up to speed on transfer pricing issues, and earn CPE credits all at the same time? Exactly. See? Irresistible. Speaking of CPE credits, we're planting two secret code words in this episode. Email both code words to The Fiona Show, that's all one word, at xbs.ai. Remember, that's two code words, and we will reply with your CPE certificates. It's that easy. Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song is here, and she'll be asking Lorraine the tough questions today. Now, before we dive into Pillar 2, and boy, there is a lot to talk about, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. First up in reg changes, the Dominican Republic has released two notices which together update the country's documentation thresholds and tax haven list. Starting with the thresholds, the Dominican Tax Authority, known as the Direccion General de Impuesto Internos, or DGII, issued notice number eight last month adjusting the threshold for requiring transfer pricing documentation from 208,000 U.S. dollars, or 11.1 million Dominican pesos, to 216,000 US dollars or 11.5 million Dominican pesos. The DGII's notice number 10 updates the Dominican Republic's white list of jurisdictions that are not considered tax havens, which sounds a little backwards. Santa doesn't just keep a list of nice kids to make things easier on him. Notable exceptions on this list, meaning these are naughty tax jurisdictions, include not only a few of the usual suspects, the Bahamas, Bermuda, Aruba, but also lesser known offenders like Iran, Iraq, and Venezuela. Venezuela. We now turn to your digital service tax roundup, and oh boy, there is a lot of ground to cover. We reported last week that the OECD's PR push to let everyone know any attempts to stop pillars one or two are futile. Well, it sounds like a lot of countries just aren't listening. OECD Secretary General Jose Angel Guerra Trevino had to go on the BBC to talk the UK off the cliff of levying a tax directed solely at tech giants, saying that the move would risk worldwide cacophony. But just last week, Danish Prime Minister Met Frederiksen threw her support behind an EU solution to the digital tax problem if the OECD can't get their own over the finish line. Meanwhile, the U.S. is pulling all the levers in a maddening attempt to stem the tide of countries passing unilateral digital taxes. In the last week alone, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross delivered a stern warning to the EU not to issue a carbon tax in lieu of a DST, while Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin threatened countries who have already passed digital taxes with crushing auto tariffs. All due respect to the Secretary General, but what else does worldwide cacophony sound like? 
Denmark's national tax court kicked off 2020 by adopting into legislation a broad definition of controlled transaction, which could have a huge impact on transfer pricing regulations. In a case that came before the court in December, the controversy came down to whether a six-year statute of limitations was applicable to a particularly rare intracompany transaction. The backstory, a Danish resident and her father owned the majority stake in a Norwegian company and received payments following routine decreases in the nominal value of the company's shares. Now, on the surface, it's understandable how that might fall under the general definition. Controlled transactions tend to be associated with general intracompany transactions like the transfer of assets such as stock payments, but now there's no gray area. So if anyone asks you, hey, what's a few payments from devalued stock from a foreign company jointly owned between family, now you know the answer, at least in Danish tax court anyway. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Before we get into the specifics of your article, uh, I'm just wondering if you can give everyone an overview of, of where we currently stand with all these new OECD proposals, right? And I think OECD was had put out these proposals for commentary. You know, have they gotten everything back? And, and what exactly are the next steps now? Well, you remember that there were public consultations both on Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, and there were huge numbers of people who and organizations that responded to both with, you know, uh, thousands of pages of documents uh, that were you could, you know, download from the OECD website as big zip files and wade through them. In both the sets of questions that the OECD Secretariat asked were primarily technical in nature. In other words, they were asking, if you think about the forest and the trees, the questions were very specific on the forest technical uh, issues, particularly on Pillar 2, where the questions were really financial accounting questions. Mm -hmm. um, and so what happened is the responses coming back, Mimi, were much focused on the technical questions. Uh, at the hearings, uh, what I watched online, because I wasn't at either of the uh, public uh, days in Paris at the OECD, uh, the comments were more, more general coming from the floor, but again, focused on these very technical questions. The small room and um, you priority was given to particular individuals, and uh, other people were shunted into a room where they could watch it on a TV set, and then the rest of us uh, watched it on uh, online. Since then, 
Uh, it's very clear that uh, the OECD Secretariat has been giving speeches in a variety of places. Pascal St. Amans has several times talked. It's come up at briefly so far at Davos, which is going on now, of course, with the World Economic Forum. The most recent one was there was a big day and a half, I think day and a half conference in Germany. And Oliver Treidler, my co-author on the piece we wrote on commentary on Pillar 1, Oliver's just filed a response. In addition, one of the other things that happened, of course, was the U.S. Treasury Secretary uh, announced that the United States was considering whether Pillar 1 should just be an optional election pillar. And that caused a huge response from the OECD Secretariat saying that if the U.S. bowed out, the whole thing would fall apart. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that discussions um, among the various tax authorities are going on behind the scenes. Uh, in addition, it, it, the discussion between the United States and France is going on. France is, uh, was going to put on a digital services tax. They looked like they'd agreed not, not to go forward, and now it looks like France is going forward with it again. These issues are going on behind the scenes. The uh, OECD Secretariat has announced that there will be further meetings this spring, and they do plan on going forward with Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. My takeaway from this is a bit of angst that the Secretariat seems very, very focused on pushing forward despite the criticisms that are being made, despite there being no good theoretical rationale for, for particularly for the Pillar 1 proposals, the Secretariat seems hell-bent on uh, pushing forward for this, which I'm, I think is too bad. Interesting developments. But I, I guess what we know is the process is continuing. The OECD has not changed its Secretariat, has not changed its fundamental approach. Mm-hmm. And we can expect more coming down the tube. And all right. Well, uh, with that said, let's talk a little bit about Pillar 2. You mentioned that the Pillar 2 proposal is based on certain rules, including the income inclusion rule. Can you tell us a little bit about that rule? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. There are actually two proposals in Pillar 2. The first was this thing called the income inclusion rule, which mm-hmm. is kind of an odd title. And the second is a tax on base eroding payments. What happened was it's clear behind the scenes the countries didn't agree, particularly on the second half, the tax on base eroding payments. So what happened is the Secretariat cut it off and said, all we're going to do is put out a public consultation document on income inclusion. Let's hold off. We'll do another public consultation document on the second half later. Mm-hmm. So this will come presumably sometime this spring. There'll be another public consultation. Now, the income inclusion rule is the one I've been referring to as the global minimum tax, okay. which I think is much clearer than saying income inclusion. Right. I mean, if I say global minimum tax, we immediately all know what it means. We say income inclusion, I haven't got a clue. So the, the idea behind a global minimum tax is very much what you would think. It's that some minimum corporate income tax rate is paid by every multinational everywhere, in some sense. Now, that's the kind of theory behind it. The practice, Mimi, of course, is the devil's in the details, right? (laughs) Sure, sure. Absolutely. How do you apply that? What's the actual base to be taxed or the income to be taxed? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
So that's got to be challenging. I think you, you mentioned three issues associated with this rule, and perhaps we talked about one of them. But what exactly are the three main issues you think that uh, this rule creates? Well, these are what I identify as the three issues that were, that were included in the public consultation document on which the OECD asked questions. Mm-hmm. First thing they asked about is what should the minimum rate be in particular, and then second thing they asked was should it be fixed rate and on what basis? And then they also asked a whole bunch of questions about how to simplify it. So the, the idea behind this in the public consultation was, okay, if we're going to have a global minimum tax rate, how high or how low should it be? Should it be uh, just a flat number mm-hmm. or a fixed percent of something else? Mm-hmm. And then talk to us about the putting it in practice in terms of financial accounting. Whose accounting rules do you use? What do you do if you have branches and subsidiaries? How do you administer this? How does it fit in tax treaty network? All the sort of nit, the nitty-gritty bits and pieces of doing it were the questions that were we were all asked to deal with in our response to this income inclusion rule. There was no question about whether the income inclusion rule was a good idea or not. Mm-hmm. That was a foregone conclusion on the OECD secretariat's part. But the question was simply, okay, we're going to have one. We're going to have a global minimum tax. Let's talk about the nitty-gritty about getting this done. What is your advice on the rate, whether it should be a fixed percent or not, and how do we go about implementing it? And those were the three things in the public consultation document. Right, right. When we talk about that, in my mind, I think, okay, so... Sure, there's lots of different ways to apply it in practice, and I'm almost thinking, okay, well, what if one multinational were expected to pay a minimum of X dollars across the entire organization, right? And that's the minimum rate. But then I, there's, there's, there are always going to be challenges in how you apportion that pie. I mean, isn't that the fundamental reason that transfer pricing rules are put into place? In a lot of ways, the fact that how do you divvy up that pie? I think you're right. I mean, if you think about multinationals making, who knows? Huh? Mm-hmm. Let me pick a number. Makes uh, some firm make um, hundred million in profits this mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. The question is, who gets to keep it? Yep. And does it all go to the multinational and no taxes are paid? How do you split that profits up? If you want some of it to go to governments, do they go to the residence country? Do they go to the source country? Pillar one was actually all about introducing a new country that should get a piece of the pie, (laughs) which is the market jurisdictions, right? Mm -hmm. Where Mm -hmm. the stuff was sold, not where it was, not the source country, not the residence country, but a completely different third group, which is where the stuff was actually sold. Yeah. So you're right. It's about divvying up the pie. Yeah. But you also mentioned that there was a second piece to, you know, pillar two that they're they're holding off on getting commentary on, which is the base eroding payments. And so in terms of the the tax on base eroding payments, you know, tell us there's there's two parts, right? Under taxed payments and uh, subject to tax rule. Tell us a little bit more about what that what that all means. Sure. The way to think about it is from the viewpoint of either the residence country or the source country. So, for example, I tend to think of this as suppose let's take a residence country where most multinationals are headquartered, like, say, the United States. Okay. What this does is it says if the multinationals, the, the American multinationals, are not paying any tax in some source country, 
the U.S. can grab a piece of that pie. Mm-hmm. All right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like saying under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, we introduced uh, guilty and beat. It's basically saying overseas, if American multinationals aren't paying tax in, say, a haven, the U.S. has a right to levy an extra tax on top. Right. Okay. okay. So that's one piece of it. The other way to think about it is from the viewpoint of the source country. The source country, when income goes out, it can levy a withholding tax on it, uh, or for, it can forego the withholding tax on the assumption that the tax is going to be paid somewhere else in the other end. But what if it's not paid in the other end? Mm-hmm. So that really, I've given you a, a deduction, say, for example, for something figuring the money you made was going to be paid a tax somewhere else, and there wasn't one. In that case, I could say, I'm going to deny you that deduction. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get that deduction here if there's no tax paid somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So in, in both cases, this idea behind this base erosion stuff is from one side, from the resident's country, we could tax something we thought you were going to tax and you didn't. Mm-hmm. And from the source country, same thing. I can deny you deductions. I can hit you with tax. If I thought you were, another country was going to do it, and they didn't. Yeah. That's why it's called a tax on base eroding payments. I haven't written very much on that because, well, frankly, I'm waiting for the next public consultation document to come down the tube. Right. But in general, I have some agreement with doing this from the perspective of developing countries that they may be allowing deductions assuming the taxes were going to be paid elsewhere and the multinational on the other hand has simply gone and moved the money into a haven and no taxes paid anywhere so in, instead of having base eroding payments you would deny that deduction mm-hmm. and which would in effect increase the firm's tax rate. Yeah, I mean, but that goes to what we were talking about earlier, too. How do you track all that? How do you implement it? How do you, how do you of course. audit it <laughs> and make well, sure that that's the other happening? Thing out, that, happening that, right. The other thing, Mimi, the experts are discussing now is these two things are quite different, mm-hmm. right? One is a, a global minimum tax. Mm-hmm. The other is all of these base eroding payments taxes. And then we have all the other BEPS changes. So how do you coordinate across these three? And let's not forget Pillar A. Yeah. So we've got four types of big changes going on. The original BEPS, Pillar 1, the global minimum tax in Pillar 2, and this tax on base eroding payments. No wonder the OECD secretary had hived this off and said, let's discuss this in 2020. <laughs> let's table that for now, exactly. So, table it for now. <laughs> table it for now. So, I mean, yes. you know, if we're thinking about the income inclusion rule or the global minimum tax, uh, using your words, it, what aspects were stakeholders specifically asked to look at? I mean, let's focus on what, we, what we're addressing at hand, at least, you know, under the first commentary uh, section for Pillar 2, right? So... What were they asked to look at? Well, my take on when I first read the public consultation document and went to the list of questions, I thought, well, I'm not going to file anything. I'm not an accountant. Huh, okay. I can't answer these questions. 
You need somebody who's a specific accountant inside a multinational to tell you what you should do here, or a you know a really good international tax lawyer who has specialized in some of the intricacies of uh, double tax treaties mm -hmm. that would determine the answers to these questions. So, for example, there was one of the questions was on should we be using IFRS, the international the accounting uh, standard, you know, rule yep. for the accounting designations, yep. or use GAAP? Yep. Right. Okay. I, I mean, I have a bit of an opinion on this, but the technicalities, I'm the wrong person to ask. Sure. It's maybe not surprising the responses in terms of filing for Pillar 2 were much less than the filings for Pillar 1. I'm going to focus more on the big pillar, the, yeah. the big picture. Yes. And just to briefly interrupt to ask Fiona, Fiona, what incentive does taxing on the worldwide tax principle offer host countries? Well, Matt, isn't it obvious? It allows host countries to set their tax rate at the global minimum tax rate without worrying about deterring foreign domestic income. You can see how something like this would really help developing countries. So how does the GLOBE proposal differ, you know, depending on worldwide versus territorial tax systems? And, and before we proceed, I'm curious, can, let's define GLOBE for the audience real quick. Okay. This is a title that includes both the income inclusion and the base eroding payments. I think it's just, maybe I should call it cute. Yeah. Does it make sense to call it cute to you? <laughs> the, it's called the Global Anti-Base Erosion. Now, that would be G-A-B-E. That would be Gabe. Yep. Gabe is not very pretty. That's right. So they took the first three letters out of global, G-L-O. Mm-hmm. Skip the ante, <laughs> grab the B from base, yep. and the E from erosion, <laughs> yep. and got globe. globe. <laughs> Excellent so it, acronym. It really is just, it's just cute. <laughs> Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Well, that's a great, you know, I understand. Sometimes you just got to make it work. And I just want to interrupt very quickly for our first CPE code word, and that word is enthralled, as in Dr. Eden was less than enthralled with the OECD's Pillar 1 proposal. And back to you guys. So depending on worldwide or territorial tax principles, how does this proposal treat those differently? Well, it's hard to sort of explain it without actually drawing pictures. And in my commentary, I actually did draw a bunch of pictures because I thought that would help. Okay. But let me try to explain it, Mimi. Okay. The, the two basic regimes in international tax, one is a worldwide tax and the other is territorial. Mm -hmm. 
the worldwide tax says the country of residence taxes its firms, its taxpayers, on a worldwide basis. Territorial says we tax you on your local income, but we exempt everybody else. So, for example, France follows a territorial system. That means French taxpayers like Michelin Tire, for example, yep. Michelin will be taxed in France, but will not. Michelin's profits earned in the United States will not be taxed by France. Mm-hmm. So only your domestic income is taxed, not your foreign source income. And worldwide taxation, not only your domestic income is taxed, but also your foreign source income. Right. And so what I walk through in the paper is let's start with two systems. One with the worldwide tax system, where we're going to tax the multinationals' income, and I start with country A as the residence country, and it's got subsidiaries in B, C, and D, and you want to figure out what the difference is if you tax worldwide, like the U.S. used to do, which it doesn't now, but what it used to do, mm-hmm. versus France, which says we're only going to tax French multinationals on their French income and ignore their income made everywhere else. What, what happens, and this is, this is not new news, public finance economists going back to the 30s and 40s understood how this worked, so it's more than 50 years ago, right? They understood that if you taxed on a worldwide basis and you credited any foreign taxes that were paid, in effect it made an umbrella mm-hmm. under which the source countries could shelter. And I talk about this very specifically in the paper as the country A, the residence country, creates a tax umbrella. It says if our rate is 30%, but I'm willing to credit you for your taxes up to my 30% rate, Mm -hmm. and the source country goes first, it has first crack rights, then all these little source countries might as well cluster under the umbrella. It's like getting free taxes, because if you don't tax, the residence country grabs the rest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me give you a simple example. The U.S. tax rate used to be 35%. Yep. All right. If the U.S. really taxed on a worldwide basis at 35%, and the Canadian rate were 25 shall we say, okay. then Canada got 25 and the U.S. got 10 it set a, the U.S. rate was 35, the Canadian is 25, the U.S. actually grosses up in credits for the Canadian rate, and so the U.S. picks up 10. So, you know, if I'm a rational country, and I know that the U.S. is going to give me a foreign tax credit rate up to 35, where do I go? I hover right under 35. Mm-hmm. Uh, makes no sense not to, because if you don't, the other country gets the tax revenue. What, that's a really nice principle in theory, but the period of time when everybody taxed on a worldwide basis is a long, long time ago. And countries have become over time much more like France, uh, where they say, we tax you at home, we don't tax your foreign source income that you earn abroad. Right. So what happens is, in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the U.S. in effect moved to a territorial system dropped the rate, and basically said, foreign source, you're not going to be taxed with us. 
except, as I mentioned earlier, under uh, guilty and beat. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But what that means, if I'm a, a source country where a lot of American multinationals are now, if I put on a tax on those firms, I am not going to get a foreign tax credit back in the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So my tax rate then can stick out just like a sore thumb. So it's a little bit like saying that umbrella is gone, and when that umbrella goes away, every source country's individual corporate income tax rate stands up like trees in a forest. And when I'm an American multinational thinking about where to put my investments, I can go to one country with a 20% rate, I can go to another country with a 5% rate, or I can go to a country with a 0% rate. Mm -hmm. Now... I mean, you have to think about, I'm not going to go to a country with a 0% rate if it doesn't have any country-specific advantages to attract me in there. Right. But taxes do affect location decisions. They also encourage abusive transfer pricing Hmm. to take advantage of the gap between the rates, right? Sure, sure. So basically what I'm saying is under the way the system was before, If you taxed on a worldwide basis, the source countries had an incentive to cluster their rates under the umbrella of the big residence countries. Now, who was the big residence country? For most of my lifetime and your lifetime, it's been the United States. Right. Mm -hmm. There are others now, but during our lifetime, it's been primarily most of the multinationals in the world have been headquartered in the U.S. And so the U.S. having a worldwide tax rate encourage this clustering under the U.S. umbrella. Now, in practice, there were holes in this because the U.S. allowed tax deferral, which said if you kept it offshore, we weren't going to tax you. And so the process of what we call tax deferral meant, in effect, the umbrella was lost as long as the money was kept offshore. And I know you've talked about this in earlier podcasts, about the overhang of money being held by American multinationals outside the United States because they didn't want to bring it home because they didn't want to pay the additional tax due in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yep. So in in my work here, I outline the, the important role played by the residence country in determining potentially the overall tax rate which then influences whether or not there's going to be tax competition across host countries as they try to attract in foreign direct investment from American multinationals. The way that you're describing the worldwide tax system in some ways, you know, sounds a lot like a global minimum tax, you know, if you will, but how would you actually differentiate between the two? What would you say were the, are the major differentiators between the two? I have to answer these questions in two parts. So okay. Let me start with the first part, Mimi. Okay. Well, let's start from the question of assume we were really using uh, worldwide taxation. Yes. So the country A, what's called the United States, went back to the way it used to be and had a worldwide tax. Yep. If you put a minimum tax on the source countries, frankly, there's no difference. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, suppose the, let's go back to the 35% rate that I had suggested the U.S. had. Right. And suppose you had a tax haven with a zero rate. 
then 35%, all of it, yep. would be due in the U.S., right? Yes. <laughs> now, suppose we put on a minimum tax of, say, 10%. Well, the U.S. is still getting 35%. Yep, yep. It's getting 10 in the minimum tax plus 25 on a top-up yep. to bring it up to the U.S. rate. Mm-hmm. From the point of view of the source country, it's irrelevant. And from the point of view of the American multinational that's got a subsidiary in that country, it's irrelevant. Yep. They're paying 10 points in uh, global minimum tax, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they're paying 25 points in just to bring it up to the U.S. rate. Yep. And frankly, from the, the incentives for the host country, they really aren't any different either, in the sense that if there is a global minimum tax of 10, and I have first crack, which the host countries do, yep. they might as well shelter under the 10% umbrella mm-hmm. and then keep on going and shelter under the 35% umbrella. So it's like two umbrellas, one umbrella for the minimum tax, that's yep. 10, and another umbrella, that's the 35 here. So then the kind of cool thing about in a worldwide tax system it doesn't really matter whether there's a minimum tax or there's not a minimum tax. It really doesn't make any difference right. since the, the rate that rules is a residence country rate. Yep, which now, theoretically will always be higher than the global minimum tax, in theory. Yeah, yeah. now that's, yeah. You're, you, you add a nice caveat. <laughs> what if you were in a residence country where the rate was less than the global minimum yep. tax? Yep. Then it does bind. That Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. Right. And similarly with the fertile. It binds, too, mm-hmm. because if I tell you you can keep it offshore and don't pay any tax, nope, you got to pay at least a minimum of 10 to the residence country. So it's like bringing back the umbrella at least to 10, mm-hmm. and that therefore gives an incentive for the host country, say that haven, and instead of setting zero, they will set 10 knowing that they still have the opportunity to defer and don't pay any additional taxes to the United States. Right. Okay. Now, let's flip and look at the second half of that. The second half says, let's talk about France and the way most countries are, with an exemption or territorial system, which says we don't tax foreign source income at all. Right. So, basically, in that case, the residence country's gone home and said, we don't care about foreign source income, tax rate on foreign source income is zero. Mm-hmm. Then a global 10% minimum tax bites. Mm. It really does bind because it says there is an umbrella now of 10%, and you can choose to give that 10 points to the residence country, mm-hmm. or you can choose to take it yourself. And I think any rational post-country tax authority says, I'd rather have it than give it to the residence country, which means then even a haven that would normally have had a zero rate, mm-hmm. if you brought in a global minimum tax, would have a real incentive to raise it to 10. Yeah. Because they know if they don't raise it to 10, the other side's going to go get it. to the residence yeah. country. Right. That's a great point. I, I think... I think it really depends, the territorial system versus the worldwide system. And and the reality of the situation is that most countries are based on a territorial tax system, right? Yes, absolutely. So. so, And as I said, the U.S. basically had a worldwide plus a deferral system. 
but has moved under Tax Cuts and Jobs Act to a sort of combined, much closer to a territorial system. Mm -hmm. They do get at foreign source income through VEDIN and through GILTI, but only in certain amounts and only under certain rates, and it's a very, both of them are very complicated tax systems. Yeah. This one, the proposal, depending upon if it goes through and whether it's implemented by the OECD, would be a much cleaner system that would apply to all the other countries that are on a deferral, or excuse me, are on a territorial system, <laughs> and would say, you know, basically where income is earned, there's a minimum tax, 10% tax paid. Yeah. It's either paid to the residence country, or given that it's got to be creditable against the residence country, you might as well raise it, the source country might as well raise it to 10 themselves. Yep, yep. So you then started to analyze the GLOBE proposal in terms of costs and benefits, and I think you had mentioned mm -hmm. that the, this whole idea of the global minimum tax is a little bit of a departure from the 2013 action plan on, on base erosion and profit shifting. Can you explain that a little bit, why you think it's a little bit of a different direction in policy? Absolutely. It really is quite a change in theory, I think. The, if you look at the OECD, everything the OECD has written, you know, from the, recently, the time of its formation, its first documents on transfer pricing, has been a focus on sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Basically said, countries get to pick your own rate. And if you want to set a corporate income tax rate of zero, that's your business. <laughs> And really has tried to maintain that. And even the BEPS proposals, that whole process, uh, originally trying to jawbone the tax havens and giving up their tax status, was still a commitment over and over to say countries have national sovereignty, they get the right to set their own rate. Mm -hmm. This one, Pillar 2, is the first time in at least my memory that the OECD has said sovereignty has a cost. Hmm. You're imposing negative externalities on the rest of the world. If you choose a rate that's zero and you engage in heavily tax-based eroding activities, mm -hmm. and we're going to stop those. Yeah. That sovereignty is not a be-all and end-all. It's, it's like saying it's one of the goals of a good tax system is sovereignty, but there are others. Transparency, equity, efficiency, neutrality, and maybe we finally got to the point in the game where sovereignty needs to no longer be a single most important goal. Mm -hmm. Another issue you mentioned in your article is that Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 proposals imply that the BEPS project isn't going to work. Can you tell us what you meant? I think the since BEPS, since the original um, items came down in 2015, I think there's been a much greater recognition that even OECD member countries, even the rich countries, we have to actually stamp out a lot of these base eroding activities that were here. So, you know, that's taking me back to the earlier paper I wrote about the arm's length standards not the problem. Yeah. That these issues were in terms of regime design and the way it was set up such that the inside renegade states could manipulate the system in ways that allowed these loopholes that then encouraged abuse of transfer pricing. Yeah. And that BEPS was actually about saying, okay, 
we need to fix the loopholes in the international regime. And that, that will then, over time, dry up a lot of these activities. Yeah. It's interesting that Pillar 2 goes back to the idea of saying we need to go after the idea that we still think there's problems, even if we implement all of this stuff, we need the OECD secretariat is in effect saying we don't think the BEPS project's going to work. We need Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 on top. Mm-hmm. But that's very hard to argue that because there's been very little time between the introduction of these and the proposals of Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Yeah, I agree. And I'm just going to take a very uh, quick interruption here. This time for our second CPE code word. The word is possible, as in it's possible that a global minimum tax could work. (laughs) So along those lines, Lorraine, you mentioned some policy recommendations. Tell us a little bit about your position on the the recommendations. Basically, I took these models that I had developed in in, in the paper and with the model of saying let's not have a global minimum tax and then let's have a global minimum tax and then think about what we could propose coming out of this. And what I said was, first thing, the global minimum tax is not a first best solution. Mm -hmm. The first best solution would frankly be if the leading residence countries, that's the United States, England, Japan, China, Germany, France, were to move back to a worldwide tax system. But I think the likelihood of that is not high. It's like um, the proverbial snowball in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) So um, given that's not likely to happen, Is there an argument to be made for a global minimum tax? And I basically say yes. Where I come to on that is that a lot of the problems we've identified would be ameliorated or at least reduced if there were a global minimum tax. For example, one of the things I mentioned earlier when we were talking was when there's a big gap in the tax rates, you'll get investments flowing to the low-tax location. Mm -hmm. If you put on a minimum tax, then that gap gets less. Right. Number two, the bigger the gap, the more incentive to engage in abusive transfer pricing. Smaller the gap, less incentive to engage in abusive transfer pricing. Right. Now, a third one we haven't talked about, but I also think this is really noticeable is if, if, if you look at developing countries, they are starved for foreign direct investment. Yes. And they need, I mean, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa needs foreign direct investment. Latin America needs foreign direct investment. I mean, I'm talking high-quality foreign direct investment. Right. And what they're doing to try and get it is lowering tax rates, offering tax preferences, setting up tax promotion agencies, and in some sense it's kind of Mm self-defeating. Because if you've got 40 or 50 countries all engaging in these same activities, they just offset one another. You know, this has been called uh, tax competition, race to the bottom. Mm. I also think of it as beauty contests. Right? Okay. You've got lined up all of these developing countries, and they're in a beauty contest 
to try and attract foreign direct investment from the United States, the UK, the Netherlands. If you have a global minimum tax, the beauty contest has to happen over it, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That means those countries get at least 10% corporate income tax. Now, what could you do with a 10% corporate income tax in sub-Saharan Africa? You could improve the quality of public services, roads, schools, food, clean water. Mm -hmm. So my thinking is the competition, the tax competition across particularly the poorest developing countries would be lessened if they knew for sure that they're setting a 10% tax rate would not lead to competition. Yep. So you have to design a system such that countries can't get around it. Right, right. In other words, there, there is a flat. Yeah, and there's now, a level playing field here. Mm-hmm. Yes, a level playing field. It's not even a really level playing field. It's a level floor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's in other words of saying the rates, every country is going to levy a rate of at least 10. It, it's supposed 10 were the number. Yeah. Five were the number. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Understand. Right? Yeah. And that means you can plan. You can spend it on things that help your country, can foster economic growth. Uh, so my, my thinking is there's that we're trading off a loss in sovereignty for a potential economic growth in the poorest countries. And for me, maybe that's a valuable trade-off. It's still the second best. Yep. But at least it it seems to me a way to bring money and encourage foreign direct investment in countries. Uh, and the proposals, the actual policy recommendations I make, I don't get in the weeds. Sure. In other words, as I said, I'm not a financial accountant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an economist. So my proposals are ones about simplicity, trying to ensure that the rate, the minimum rate is the same for them all, mm-hmm. and building into the current international tax regime system. Yep. I think it's important to maintain the system. Most of the BEPS proposals I agree with, except Pillar 1. <laughs> and I think if it's possible to introduce a global minimum tax, it has the possibility of opportunity of reducing differences and disparities across countries. Yep. As long as it's clear, simple, does not impose an undue burden on on multinationals sure. and on the governments themselves. Yeah, and on the governments. I think that's an important takeaway here, right? It's Ultimately, yeah. it sounds like a global minimum tax, from your perspective, could actually be beneficial on a global basis, especially to those emerging market countries where perhaps there's, there's so much competition, you know, it just puts them on a level playing field. So I think that's right. Yeah. And uh, getting rid of that tax competition... Uh, trying to slow down those beauty contests, those are positive impacts. And and some of the negative impacts of GLOBE, really, the, the bad aspects of, of GLOBE at this point is just practical implications of implementation, right? I mean, that's... I think so. And the cost associated with And again, as I said, the, you do need your financial accountants. You do need your international tax law specialists to think how tax treaties would have to be modified. One of the examples, for example, is... Um, branches and subsidiaries 
it needs to apply to both branches and subsidiaries. Some writing tax rules that allow this has to be taken into account down here. One final interruption here, this time for our second CPE code word, and that word is possible, as in it's possible that a global minimum tax could work. And back to our conversation. And ultimately, you know, I mean, we're moving to a system there where there's more global tax transparency and and, and in some yep. ways, maybe even moving towards this uh, ideological worldwide tax system, right? So... <laughs> Well, I don't know that we'll ever get there. <laughs> Maybe that's a little extreme. Uh, I'm, 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 in other words, I'm not prepared to sort of argue for the sovereign, taking away the sovereignty for everyone's yeah, That's right. But, but I can see, you know, if you think about, let me make the following argument to you, maybe see what you're saying. Corporations are creations of states. They have to have a charter which is given to them by a government. They gain benefits from being in a country by access to the citizens, by access to the infrastructure. All of these things are provided by governments and firms benefit from that. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason for firms then to pay some of those profits back ineffectively to the states, which is in some sense compensation for the benefits that the corporations received as entities inside those countries. And in some sense, you can look at a minimum corporate income tax almost from a benefit tax perspective as saying it's some returning of a percent of profits back to the source location, right, Mm -hmm. in compensating for the activities that took place. And the the, the way it's being written... And the proposal is the opportunity to grab that money is supposed to go to the residence country. My argument has been that it establishes a new first crack principle, which is that every source country will tax up to and might as well tax up to that rate. Right, right. So even though the proposal is written as if the residence countries are going to take it, I think in effect it's the source countries that will primarily be the beneficiaries of this proposal. Well, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And, and to your point, in some ways, the way you explained it, it made me think, you know, it's, it's almost like forcing companies to reinvest in themselves in a lot of ways because they're getting the benefits of opening up in a new country and then they're forced to pay taxes in that new country. So it's like this reinvestment of money, which, you know, I think companies probably should do anyway. <laughs> well, I, I think there's some argument for saying that firms should pay yep. some tax. Yeah, I agree. Um, and that governments provide services that are valuable and useful. Yes, I agree. Um, we need health care, education, clean water. Those things have to be financed, and I don't think they should have to be 100% financed by the personal income tax or sales tax. Yeah, and there's just, some argument for taxing corporations and the shareholders in those corporations. Yeah, yeah, and ultimately, you know, all that is—it's just really helping developing countries and, and helping them, you know, move away from being a third world country to hopefully elevate their statuses, right? So, uh, I think that's wrong. Yeah. Lorraine, this has been great. I think there's so much good information here, and I think people are going to love hearing this. So, really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Okay. And just to briefly interrupt to ask Fiona, Fiona, what are some of the takeaways from Lorraine about Pillar 2? Well, Matt, 
While some issues still need to be ironed out, Lorraine seems to think Pillar 2 has promise. To start, Pillar 2 proposes a global minimum tax, which could really help developing countries because they won't have to use tax breaks to earn foreign domestic income. As Lorraine said, think of what a 10% tax rate could mean for countries in Africa, clean water, better education, paved roads, and more. But there are costs to consider, too, and perhaps the biggest is that countries will lose their tax sovereignty. There is so much to consider and I can't wait to see the OECD's next move. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-Border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Another great talk with Dr. Lorraine Eden. Now you know why we never get tired of hearing what she thinks. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Eden. And now, a special rapid fire. We're going to turn the tables and ask our host, Matt DeMello, what we want to know. Matthew, are you ready? Oh, wow. My birthday came a week <laughs> early. This is great. That's right. Okay. So, Matt, what Fiona Show episode has resonated with you the most? Transfer pricing in a recession, by far. Is I, that really? I, oh. Just uh, something that I really love about transfer pricing is the storytelling aspect. Okay. And in that episode, Barbara Barbara Montagani, who's who's been with us a few times in the time since, she's great. She explained how no matter what happens, you know whether you have the you know dumbest management team in the universe or you got hit by a hurricane, you have to tell that story in your transfer pricing. And I think that really rammed home the purpose that, that I feel this this industry has. All right. Well, this stuff tells nicely into the next question: Is what have you learned from hosting this podcast? Oh my God, what haven't I learned? But I came into this industry and I came to cross border coming from a world policy Institute. So I knew of the OECD. I knew uh, what, you know, base erosion uh, and profit sharing was. I, I hadn't quite, maybe I had heard of transfer pricing in that, that context, but very indirectly. So uh, really the entire body of knowledge on this show, I've just absorbed like a, like a brain sucking alien while just trying to put this show together. So what's your secret for getting shy guests to talk speak softly and 
if you can always show them, like, especially the more you can make it sound like you're getting lunch together rather than they're on the spot and, you know, all the cameras are on them. And if you can get them to remember that they're talking to you, a human being, and not, you know, officially putting their voice into the record, I think Mm. that always helps. So even if I, you know, I always, you know, point to my nieces and nephews, if there's any anecdote I can kind of just bring up about kids, get people to feel a little bit more comfortable and in their own skin. And, picture you naked. Yeah, or, or you know that that you know, those dreams always work. The under the underwear dreams work. Um, so why? What second question? Follow on to that. Why are people so afraid of microphones? Hmm. Uh, there's a few people in this office who could give you a more direct answer, but I think I think it's just you know just stage fright in general. And I get it. At the same time, I think podcasts make it the easiest to get rid of that illusion. Okay. Because there's microphones, but there's not cameras. So you don't feel watched. You feel heard. And that's that's a totally different thing. And I think wa- being seen or being watched, fe- that feeling's a little bit more pervasive. That's harder to get rid of. So I think, by, you know, I, I got a little bit easier with microphones. Okay. Well, last but definitely not least, what do you want listeners to take away from the Fiona show the most that as as straight laced as any profession can be and formal and objective that there's still an enormous potential for creativity especially and i think transfer pricing really touches on that the most of anything i've seen in uh, international tax accounting or anywhere else and that fusion of the creative and the objective can bring untold amounts of value to private businesses, to the world, really. We, we, we touched a lot about on this show about the social purpose of tax. And, you know, we need schools. We need clean air. We need there's a there's a social contract here. And I feel like we achieve the real potentials of that social contract when when we're able to fuse the objective and what's human about it. All right. Well, thank you for being in the hot seat, Matt. You can take it away. Well, that was a surprise, but a fun one. And the truth is, most of the surprises are the good kind around here. Sound like incentive to subscribe to this podcast? Good. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Take your pick. And of course, complete the package by subscribing to The Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press, our sister podcast, where we'll keep you up to speed on transfer pricing headlines every week. This podcast was written by our executive producer, Marilyn Mitchum-Strom, and edited, engineered, and hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello. That's the end of this discussion, but when you want to hear intelligent experts shoot the you-know-what about transfer pricing, well, you know where to find us. Mm